You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey. I'm joined by our other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. And we are joined today, once again, with a good friend of the podcast, Dr. Jeremy Sabella, lecturer at Dartmouth University, Niebuhr scholar, contributor, consultant, and developer of the uber-successful and enjoyable documentary on the life of Reinhold Niebuhr and American Conscience, and author of its companion biography on Niebuhr of the same name. Jeremy, welcome. Thank you. You know, I've, I've always kind of wanted to be a friend of the pod, basically any <laughs> pod. So I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to be here again. Oh, good. We're a, we're, we're a relatively yeah. new podcast, so we're excited to have friends of the pod. <laughs> I've never been able to say that about anybody else, so. Well, it's um, it's been pretty dead this past week, news-wise. <laughs> Not a lot has happened in the country since the last time we talked. Yeah, such right? such a boring time to be alive. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, I feel kind of bad that we do have this podcast and we report every, you know, we're on here every week, and some big, huge things happen. But you know, you kind of have to stay focused on what we're doing a little bit, but. Um, but yeah, obviously, Supreme Court decision, um, obviously, the Trump stuff, uh, you know, the Gen, Gen 6 uh, uh, committee hearings, huge stuff has happened. And we actually were going to get on yesterday to interview Jeremy. And we all decided, no, I mean, the Gen 6 committee is coming out with something big. And it was Hutchinson's testimony was yesterday. Pretty intense stuff. But anyway, we're, we're glad that Jeremy could fit us in the next day. And, uh, and we're here on a Wednesday now instead of a Tuesday. So, Jeremy, we finished your book, and I think I can speak on behalf of all of us here at the Love Thy Neighbor podcast when I say that this was extremely fulfilling, it was an extremely engaging read, and it really brought to life this character that we rarely get to see in narrative form like this. That's something that I, I kept on thinking about throughout is, you know, you, you rarely get to see, it, it's, it's, as you said yourself, this isn't an academic book. Um, but it, but it is a great contribution because we get to see Niebuhr as an actual character living out his life and, you know, grappling with new events and, and seeing how these events and these new relationships that he have go into kind of what he writes next. And it's just great to see it all laid out like this. So we're, we're very appreciative of this. We're very appreciative of the fact that you were able to come on again with us, um, at the end of our reading of this. Now, to set up for this, uh, you know, this podcast, this episode, it's the same drill as last time. We each have questions uh, now that we've made our way completely through your book, and we're just going to go in order. So to, to start us all off, I'm going to call on Zach. Zach, you want to get us started with a question? Yeah, I could ask. <clears throat> I had a question. We were, when we were going through the section on um, irony of American history, can't remember exactly which chapter that is, but there was the idea of um, divine laughter. And th th this, this concept has kind of stayed with me at, throughout the book, right? It's just kind of hung with me. 
And I've read, ironically, I've read Irony of American History like three times. And I didn't quite synthesize out this idea of divine laughter. Um, But I guess the question I had around it was just more, I can see like a really clear group of people, right? I, I spend a lot of time in more conservative evangelical circles. And I think that this idea of divine laughter could be extremely beneficial to this group. Um, but I was just wondering, are, are there other groups that you could see as being really beneficial to? And even, I mean, do, do you see ways that it could be beneficial to evangelicals? Yeah, well, and I, and I do want to start out by saying like, it's, um, you know, it, when I wrote this book, I was hoping that it would generate precisely the kinds of conversations you've been having, right? I, you know, I'm honored that you uh, chose it to go through uh, chapter by chapter. And um, yeah, no, the, the conversations that it has spawned on on the podcast have been have been really, really lovely and um, gratifying for me as an author to see the book used in that way. Um, coming back to the laughter question, the way that I see Niebuhr talking about divine laughter is that it, you know, if we can accept the fact that God laughs at us sometimes, we have to accept that we're, we can be kind of ridiculous. And we probably become most ridiculous when we're the most self-serious. Yeah. And again, it's just, you know, anecdotally, we, we, we know this just from human interaction, right? When we get to the point where we can laugh at ourselves, we, we're holding things a little bit more loosely. We're, we're, we're not taking ourselves too seriously. It requires a certain kind of humility to be able to laugh at oneself. And so Niebuhr talking about God laughing at us, this isn't some kind of cruel laughter, right? There's, 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 there's an element of, of love and care and, and that laughter. And I, I think about this as a check on the human propensity for idolatry, right? We, we can make idols of, of almost anything. And, and this is a category that's underdeveloped. We tend to think of idolatry as something that's very Old Testament that has to do with actual physical statues that people actually bow down to. But biblically speaking, um, you know, anything that, you know, becomes all consuming for us is an idol. An ideology can be an idol. Our particular reading of scripture can become an idol. If we're not willing to have that challenged or refined or, 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 or submit to some kind of give and take, right, where we're held accountable for that read of the Bible. Um, so virtually anything can become an idol. And the ability to stop and laugh at ourselves is, is a check on that tendency. So, you know, I, I think you can gauge the health of communities by how much they laugh. And by how much humor they're capable of generating. You know, there are certain political movements in our country that are very unfunny. Yeah. They don't know how to have a sense of humor. To me, that's actually a spiritual problem. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Because the the inability to laugh at oneself suggests that one is trapped in a a certain kind of self-seriousness and a certain kind of idolatry. And so, you know, I I, I do think that I, I don't necessarily want to single out particular political groups, right? But I just encourage listeners, think about groups and communities and individuals in your life that do not laugh. Well, yeah. And one of the things I think of immediately is just like, the reason I'm a, I'm a part of conservative evangelical, so that's probably why I'm thinking of that group. But one of the things I think of is like, there's like sometimes wanting to get your doctrine so precise can often cause that self, or it seems to be related to that self-seriousness. You know what I mean? That, that like, 
any sort of variation or any sort of deviation away from like the precise doctrine that you're supposed to be, you know, all of a sudden this person becomes a heretic and it's almost like they, this person looks on themselves with this over seriousness. You know what I mean? So really interesting, that idea of idolatry and how those things are kind of, because like 10 groups popped into my mind immediately. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, no, and it is, it's, it ties into the, just the, the kind of like sectarian pandemic in American Christianity, right? We've split off into all sorts of different factions and that speaks to a certain kind of unfunny self-seriousness, right? Where we quibble over these minor points of doctrine. And it is, you, you know, you go through, you know, town squares in the, the country, you'll see the first church of, of a denomination, second church of a denomination, third church of a denomination, all splitting off from one another, mm-hmm. right? Over what I think probably amounts to a certain kind of self-seriousness. That's, that's a really good analysis. That's really, that's going to make me ponder for a while. It seems like uh, so many people just engaged in politics don't know how to have that arm's length reach from it that, that keeps them far enough away from it that they can laugh at themselves a little bit. But we kind of embody it so much that we take everything so seriously. We have this kind of white knuckle death grip on our beliefs. And part of it is I, I think that we're very obsessed with dystopias. And the fact, like, I know I am, like, I'm, I am, I'm pretty afraid of fascism in the United States. And that does draw me in to take very seriously what happens in DC, what happens in the voting booth. And it makes me look at every new thing that happens with this death grip that, oh my gosh, we can't, you know, if this happens, then this is a tipping point, another tipping point that we're going to wake up tomorrow and we're going to be in fascism type of thing. Um, and I think a lot of people have that type of fear, whether it's fascism or we, there's all kinds of insecurities on the right of, of uh, the, the liberals, you know, indoctrinating their youth and stuff like this. It's just so fear-based, you know? And so I think that that laughter is really important to, to, to infuse into the way that we understand the world. I'd, I'd agree. And I think today, all these groups do have a sense of humor right the memification of our culture yeah are just short ways of in a way attacking other people though or people who are not are in our group and so the technology we use in a sense is is utilized to make us more comfortable with our own positions you don't have to think much about the the difficult and ambig- ambiguity of these issues going on in our society uh, much all you have to do is put a, a little quote on a picture and then you can send it out you know so maybe the what you're talking about jeremy and and cliff and and zach is just having this sort of humor that is very self-reflecting that needs to be injected into our society so uh, and that, that's exactly right it has to be self-reflective laughing at others right right that that can be scornful and mean and spiteful laughing at oneself that's something a little bit different and again like i I think that the people like the kind of comics i really respect are the ones that can get the audience to laugh at themselves a little bit yeah right look at themselves what's that would you say dave Chappelle's a comic that oh let's not go there there. i I don't know i'm just thinking because i was watching something from the last night but um i'll I'll tell you what i i think he's prodigiously talented and i think he has a track record over the course of a career of doing that very well whatever we make of his latest turn 
right? I, I think he's somebody who um, really kind of has a beat on the ironic in American life and has done a really good job of making audiences laugh at themselves. And, and Chappelle, like any one of us, of course, he's prone to the same like struggles with, you know, pride and hubris and myopia as anyone else, right? Yeah. But I, I do see him as somebody who has has a, a kind of genius for that and for inducing the, the sort of ironic laughter that somebody like Niebuhr thinks is, is healthy for a functioning democracy. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, the memification of our culture. I mean, that, that's a topic for a whole other time. But really, can people laugh at themselves is the litmus test. And any mm-hmm. pastor will tell you the yeah. quickest way into the heart of, of your congregation is self-deprecation in your sermons. I mean, people will immediately loosen up and think I can trust this guy. It'll make, or gal, it'll make, it'll humanize whoever's speaking that self-deprecation. So there's, yeah, there's there's something um, really unifying about the ability to laugh about ourselves. Yeah. And laughing only at others, that's a problem, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It it has to be self-reflexive to, to occupy that space of ironic laughter. That, that Niebuhr's talking about, because what triggers that laughter at ourselves is realizing the gap between the, you know, we, we laugh because we see the incongruity. We see the gap between who we claim to be and who we actually are. Right. And that, that it's the gap that makes it funny. Hmm. And whenever we're acknowledging that space between who we ought to be and who we are, um, that's where repentance happens. <laughs> hmm. Right. That's where we can receive, you know, the, the correction of, of the spirit, if we're going to use Christian language. So that's, you know, that's where I do see there being a, a clear spiritual connection with, with laughing at oneself. Yeah. Aaron, I believe you have the next question. Um, yeah. So my question um, is, what parallels do you see between Niebuhr's America and our America today? Wow. I mean, so in my own work with Niebuhr, I've done my most focused study on the 1930s. Um, so I'm inclined to see that decade as being the one with the clearest par- parallel to today. But I think it goes beyond my own expertise here, right? It's the 1940s. It's, that's, that's a decade of world war and recovering from world war, right? We're, we're not there right now. Hopefully we won't be. <laughs> but we are at a period where there's an awful lot brewing. And that's the 1930s, right? You, you have the Great Depression. Um, to, to, to start the decade, you have the beginning of World War II to end the decade, and you have America waffling on whether or not to engage. Um, and we also have America becoming really isolationist and really xenophobic and really just transparently racist in the 1930s. And so, you know, for, for, for obvious reasons, right, where we're in an era of, of economic insecurity and turmoil, we have, you know, wars and rumors of wars happening elsewhere. Um, and we have this like unapologetic xenophobia um, and, and racism in, in the public square. Um, so for all those reasons, I, I, I do see this as a similar moment to the 1930s. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that gives me hope with a figure like Niebuhr, he, um, you see the turn in his thought as he gets deeper into the decade, right? He starts out the decade angry with moral man and immoral society with, with notes of despair in his writing. By 1937, 1938, 1939, you start seeing some r- drilling down to some really hopeful forms of thought. 
right? You take a book like Beyond Tragedy, the, the whole book is hopeful. The title tells you that it's hopeful. Um, you have him start working on Nature and Destiny of Man, right? He's, he's, he's already laying the groundwork for, for what will come after this tumultuous period. So to answer your question, Aaron, I, I think it is the 1930s. Um, and, you know, that can sound like a really somber assessment, but there, there, there's, there's a note of hope in that. I think it generated some of the most interesting thought in American life. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're in a period that can, you know, generate that thought and help us lay the groundwork to be better on the other end of this time of crisis. It almost feels sometimes like we almost have to get closer to the precipice in order to start taking it, in order to get a better look at ourselves. It just, it, it, for the past decade, it's just felt like we're boiling frogs, like just slowly morphing into this. Yeah, I, I guess my, just the one thing I would say is like, because there are obviously these parallels you, you've, you've mentioned, Jeremy, between, you know, wars or is wars, racism, and stuff like that. When, when you're coming out of the 1930s and 1940s, I mean, Niebuhr has the creation of what would become the UN, right? Diplomatic agreements between nations, diplomacy happening. Um, you obviously have the USSR and threat of nuclear war, um, but that kind of boils over eventually, right? Um, but for this all to happen again in the same way, would you think Niebuhr would be as hopeful going the second time around, if you if you understand what I'm saying, as he was the first time around? Um, Does that question make sense? No, the, the question makes sense. And... Okay, so I, I um, you know, be, before I give a more direct answer to the question, I, the, the other verse that I wonder if Niebuhr would turn to here is, you know, what, what has been said is in secret is now being shouted from the housetops, mm-hmm. right? So Cliff, going back to your point about the frog and boiling water, um, you know, we, America has a lot of unfinished business and dirty laundry that it has ignored for a long time. And we're no longer at a point where we can ignore it. You know, even those of us who have been, had our heads most in the sand are, are being forced to, to grapple with these really problematic undercurrents in American life. And, and you know, so, ho- so hopefully something salutary can come out of it. So would Niebuhr have more hope the second time around? I think he would see it as a matter of, you know, certainly for those who identify as Christian, this Christian obligation to hope. And um, I think he'd really work hard at finding ways to articulate the importance of hope for a secular audience. Um, and I'm basing this off of his sermon on the Tower of Babel and Beyond Tragedy, where he basically says, you know, the, the cycle of human history is such that it's just empires rise and fall, right? That's, that's just the nature of history. Like we, we build these towers out of the very best that, you know, he's analogizing, you know, the, the rise and fall of civilization to the rise and fall of the Tower of Babel. The stuff that goes into the building of these towers, a lot of it's really good. It's, it's human ingenuity. It's it's creativity, it's collaboration, it's, it's a bunch of beautiful things, right? But it also invo- implicates the worst in us, right? And it implicates our hubris. It implicates exploiting our, our fellow humans for their, for their labor or whatever else, right? So the building of our civilizations, it, it, it contains both the, you know, the glory and misery of being human. And so when the tower of, towers of Babel collapse, when, when civilizations go into periods of collapse, um yes there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of real pain in the collapse um but there's also some mercy in it 
right? Because these things that we've gotten really wrong, these ways that we've really hurt one another are finally able to come to the surface. And we're given a new chance to rebuild in a fairer, more just way. And so there's also mercy in the falling. And, and I think I'd see somebody like Niebuhr as for, you know, basically pushing us to reckon with, yeah, something, some big things are collapsing right now. Like, I don't think this is necessarily like civilizational collapse, but it is, it's certainly a collapse of a version of America and a version of American power. And if America wants to, you know, remain relevant or even remain together, it's, you know, we're going to have to make some changes. Right. And those changes are going to, feel a little bit like one tower of Babel collapsing and us having to build another, you know, start building again, this time in, in fairer, more just ways, this time in ways where we, we really do face up to these, these long festering issues in our society. Mm -hmm. Uh, So therein lies the hope, right? There's always mercy in moments of collapse available to us. And so we, we need to avail ourselves of that mercy. We need to avail ourselves of those opportunities. What I was thinking about when I said that it almost feels like we almost have to get closer to the precipice in order for us to wake up a little bit. Niebuhr's writing Beyond Tragedy right, right before World War II. And the things that he's saying in that are so prophetic. I mean, it's, I remember we read it last summer and I had to like double take, like look at the date again, because so much of it was a harbinger for what would become Nazi Germany. And he was just kind of seeing it in its earliest stages. And, uh, and it almost, and, and he's, uh, he is kind of supplying this prophetic witness. So he's just before it all hits the fan. And it's almost like we needed the war to wake people up to what was going on and to the real problems that were going on in society. They get through the war. They're still dealing with anti-Semitism, you know? So I don't know what's coming that would force us to wake up a little bit but it almost seems like world war ii was in some ways like you're saying it almost seems like it was an act of mercy um and kind of jarring people awake a little bit and i'm just wondering what that next what that next thing is and we're not going to be ready for it and i i don't know i yeah i don't know if you can well, listen that. i know this is this is a legitimately frightening time right like i i don't see a reason to pretend otherwise we're we're dealing with a lot of things that really feel like they don't have precedence we we're at the end of something the 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 patterns aren't there to help us see around the corner that's really frightening right and i don't i don't want to paint niebuhr as saying that like suffering's redemptive like i don't necessarily think he's claiming that right but but when things do go sideways Right. If, if we're proactive, if we're open to it, there are opportunities to, to find something that will help us, um, you know, gather ourselves and, and do, improve upon what, what came before. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the turn that Niebuhr would take today is, you know, this, when he's talking about fascism abroad in the 30s, he'd be talking about it here in 2022. Yeah. Oof. Right. He'd be talking about Christian nationalism. And um, I mean, he'd be taking haymakers to to proponents of Christian nationalism. Um, I'm 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 pretty well, confident of that. So why didn't you like? It seems like you kind of allude to that in the book that you know it has rel- you like mentioned that it has like a ton of re- like Niebuhr has a ton of relevance today. But it seems like you kind of 
avoided that because it was, I mean, right at the height of the beginning, like Trump just started, Trump had just gotten elected when you published the book. Um, what, what kept you from addressing that, I guess? Uh, well, um, for the book to coincide with the um, release of the documentary, I had to finish it the summer 2016. Wow. So that, that's really the reason, right? I, um, you know, I'll, I admit this with some embarrassment now. I didn't think Trump had a realistic shot. None and of boy, did. was I wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it is, it's, it, um, and, and so part of it was like, I didn't see what was just around the corner and, and the book would have probably ended quite different. Um, you know, had, the election unfolded before I had, you know, submitted the final proofs. Um, but even then I, you know, it's, it's a careful dance with a book like this because I want people to be able to draw the connections to the present, but history moves so quickly. I don't want it to be bound to any one moment. Mm. Right. And a big part of the argument of the book is like, listen, a figure like Niebuhr is helpful, really, really helpful for making sense of your particular moment. But if I drill down too much in the particulars, I risk losing that portrait of Niebuhr. Somebody like, listen, it, it doesn't matter how much history zigs and zags, right? It doesn't matter how much things change. This is somebody who's giving you ways to relate these basic tenets about faith, hope, and love to the present and, and give them the tools they need to do that, whatever the present looks like in 2017 or 2027 or 2037. Um, so my question is... Uh... It's actually similar to Aaron's, but so Niebuhr is in Niebuhr is in some ways always Niebuhr, you know, but um, but he's he's the kind of guy who does go through different uh, transformations. A lot of times his emphases change, topics change, uh, different times his thought is more developed on certain subjects than others. Do you have a favorite Niebuhr in history? You know, I um, Gary Dorian has said that Niebuhr changes mind every decade. And um, there's there's some truth to that. I, I think I think Gary's on to something. As we talked in the podcast, there's certainly continuity from decade to decade. I think there's a theological continuity with these political shifts, depending on what's happening on the ground. Um, but you know what? I'm, I'm really quite invested in the Niebuhr of the 30s. And it's not to discount later Niebuhr's like I, I think Children of Light and the Children of Darkness is a brilliant book. I think it's a book we really need right now, for instance, and that comes out of the mid-1940s. But what makes the 30s so fascinating for me is that this is where you really see him, you know, the way Paul Tillich described that Niebuhr was in Kairos in the 30s, hmm. right? He, his mind was working so fast and he was pulling so many things together. And it's, it's where you see him, and this is, you know, potentially, that this is a potentially much broader topic, but I think it's important to highlight here. It's where you see him articulate a distinctly non-Manichaean understanding of good and evil and of America's role in the world and, and what it means to be an actor in a broken world. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is, it's, 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 I think some of his most theologically and politically generative and sophisticated work in that decade. And it, it, it sets the building blocks that he builds on in the 40s 50s and 60s do you think do you, would you attribute that a lot to you i think you made a big deal in your book about him making the switch from being the narrator the narrator who is kind of 
fixed in his position to what you call the God's eye point of view. Do you think that that was maybe one of the more significant moves that he makes in that period is to be able to see good and evil, maybe, you know, uh, sharing the spine, you know, and the, you know, there isn't a purely good side or a purely bad side type of thing. Uh, wh what do you think? Uh, yeah. So he shifts from, you know, the, there's like a very dialectic quality to moral man and immoral society. It's implied in the title, right. Where he's kind of pivoting back and forth. You can tell, I mean, he's, this really is dialectical materialism in a lot of ways. This is very Marxist yeah. in, in the way that, that Niebuhr's hashing out his thought in moral man and immoral society and to good effect. I mean, it's a brilliant book, but he realizes the limits to that method pretty quickly after. And, you know, the, and, you know, in chapter two of my book, I, I, I explain in detail the role that his brother had in helping him see some of the shortcomings of moral man and immoral society. But what you have emerge after that is, you know, he's, he's, the dialectical materialist phase of his writing is done, right? He's a lot more in a bashed in invoking um, theological categories to help him think through contemporary problems. And so he, he comes back and again to the image of, you know, it's, it's the image taken from Greek mythology of the Scylla and, and Charybdis yeah. where you have to, you know, he, he talks about navigating the frail bark of justice between the Scyllas and, and Charybdis and what he sees as the Scylla and Charybdis of a particular moment, right? These mythical monsters that can um, destroy your boat. Um, it, it shifts from mo one moment to the next. But, but what he does by using that method is he's resisting these like clear narratives of good and evil where he's, you know, where he says, you know, I know where the good is. I know where the evil is and we're on the side of good. Right. He's avoiding that construction and basically saying, like, listen, evil is very real. We have to fight it. But in the process of fighting it, we're going to discover um, plenty of sin and evil within ourselves. And we're going to have to face that. And we're also going to have to remember that the people we're contending with are children of God mm. who are made in God's image and who, in many cases, want the same things we do. They're just horribly misguided. And so in, in doing that, he pushes us to think of good and evil in these nuanced ways. It's the parable of the wheat and the tares. He wrote so many sermons on that parable. When I was you know, oh, working yeah. in the Niebuhr papers, there's one sermon after another, after another, where he's preaching on the parable of the wheat and the tares, but he took that very seriously, right? The, the wheat and the tares are growing up in every human heart, <laughs> right? And whatever action we take against evil in history, we cannot forget the tares within ourselves or the wheat that's growing on the other side of the conflict. That's good. Uh, one kind of follow-up question. You had mentioned his uh, relationship with his brother. One difference that I saw between you, the way that you frame this relationship between Niebuhr and his brother uh, and the way that Dorian frames it is Dor Dorian almost uses it as a way to say, aha, see, he's still liberal. Um, his brother even points this out you kind of use this as a launching pad, as a point where, you know, it's where Niebuhr launches into this new aspect of his career. So his brother's more of a catalyst for opening kind of a whole new world for him. And Aaron brought up the point while, while we we're going over this, that kind of discovering Tillich allowed him to fulfill, and Tillich's way of understanding myth, kind of allowed Niebuhr to fulfill a lot of his, his brother's prodding, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, so I do see a pivot there. And I, I appreciated you picking up on the fact that, you know, 
um, Gary Dorian, he converted to liberal Protestantism. Mm -hmm. That's always been his tradition. I do come out of an evangelical background. So I'm going to read Niebuhr and this inflection moment in a different way than somebody like Dorian. Um, but I, I do see it as, as a key inflection point of, you know, in the 1920s, you know, Niebuhr spent the 1920s as a pastor. Obviously, he's a committed Christian. But, you know, I, I think his commitment to using theological categories to inform how he's thinking about politics, that really solidifies in the wake of moral man and immoral society. And a lot of it, I really do think is at the prompting of his brother, who basically tells him, like, listen, Reinhold, go back to your Paul and your Augustine. Go back to these, these classic understandings of, of sin and grace. Because that's what's going to crack your thought open. That's what's going to help you cut the last tethers from this moribund form of liberalism that you've critiqued so beautifully. Hmm. Right? If you really want to make that clean break, theology is your way to do that. And so on Reinhold's own telling, right, he moved to the right theologically and to the left politically after that. Hmm. And the rightward theological move is basically him taking these classic sources a lot more seriously, delving into them figuring out how they apply to the particular moment. And is there a left beyond, you know, moral man and moral society? Yeah. It's, you know, reflections on the end of an era, mm -hmm. right. You could make the case that he's lurching even further leftward at that point. Um, so, you know, that, that shifts as, as, as circumstances shift, he, he moves, you know, away from the political left more toward this kind of center left position in part because he saw, um, the new deal work in ways that he really didn't expect. Hmm. Right. And, and that's where we can talk about the kind of like the importance of this, this, this ironic laughter. Right. I think Niebuhr could sense the irony of like, I thought this was far too milk toast and moderate to work, but somehow it worked. <laughs> and I have to acknowledge that. And I have to work with that. Right. And that, that introduces this whole other epoch in his thought, but no, you're, you're right. I, I do see that conversation with his brother as a, as a real inflection point and as as Niebuhr really becoming a true political theologian after that time at his brother's product. Yeah, that confirms a lot of my suspicions. I mean, I, us coming from evangelical background as well, that that's kind of how I always read Niebuhr. So, yeah, I found that uh, assuring, although Dorian does have, you know, a great point. Like there are certain things that he doesn't give up on, you know, obviously. And uh, in many ways, he, he maintains that tradition of liberalism. Oh, absolutely. And this also comes back to the liberalism that's really deeply embedded in evangelical theology. Interesting. Right. Hmm. There's um, a really optimistic epistemology underlying evangelicalism. If you really believe that all humans need to do is just to read the word or hear the word and they can receive it in their unsaved state you have a pretty high estimate of, of human nature and human susceptibility to truth. Yeah. Higher than the estimate that I now share. Hmm. Interesting. But there is, you know, they, I actually do agree that, and, and Niebuhr saw this later in his life, that he retained elements of the social gospel all the way through, even as he really critiqued these, um, you know, what he saw as he's, you know, somewhat naive, uh, overly optimistic, unduly optimistic versions of it. But but evangelicalism tends to share in that optimism. It, it really does believe that, you know, all people need to do is hear the word and they can be saved. And once they have the spirit in them, they're empowered to 
bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Yeah. And that's actually very similar to social gospel. And I think, I think somebody like Niebuhr would say, okay, way too optimistic on all sorts of scores. We need, you know, to take sin more seriously. We need to take the social repercussions of sin more seriously. There is no kingdom of God, this side of history. We catch glimpses of it, but we do not build it. But still, even in that critique, there's a not to, but your optimism that the spirit can change humans and change the world is correct. Mm. It's just that that change is always more partial and fragmented than we want it to be. And we need to be honest about that. A question that I just I kind of think of because I've I've attempted to deploy your book quite a bit. I give it out every Christmas. Um, but how did you hope for this book to, book to be deployed, and how would you hope for it to be deployed? Kind of moving forward, is there a certain like? Do you want to see it in church groups where they're doing a book study on this? Do you want to see it? Uh, like, how, how do you want to see it deployed? I guess. Yeah, you know, I really just wanted to. I, I, I wanted to get people excited about uh, like an all-American thinker that has gotten overlooked in a lot of ways, right? Hmm. Um, and I really just really, really want people to take Niebuhr's message about the social implications of sin seriously. And so, yeah, no, see, like seeing it in things like church groups, um, you know, this podcast discussion has been really gratifying because it has been a part of what I had hoped for, right? That people would think, oh, this is really neat. We need to delve in and, and y'all have really delved in and it's, and helped introduce this to a broader audience. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, but yeah, just a resource for that and a resource for finding resources, finding hope, right? At the end of the day, and I'm not alone on this, you know, there's, there's a, a scholar in, in the Princeton religion department named Eric Gregory, who basically, talks about Niebuhr as really introducing hope into American political and theological discourse. Wow. And I think Eric is right about that, right? I, I think that's one of Niebuhr's signal contributions and, and particularly in a moment where we're so tempted to despair. Um, Niebuhr is one of these thinkers that can help us all collectively be clear-eyed about the problem without losing hope. You wanna hear something crazy? Guess which theologian? Well, you won't be able to guess, so I'll just tell you. There is a theologian who got into theology, went to seminary because he read, read Nature and Destiny of Man, none other than the hope theologian, Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann. Wow. Yeah. 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 What was I going to say? I um, love that. Love Jürgen. But yeah, the, the story goes, I read it online um, a while back as an interview that uh, he was, it was after high school. I, I think, I, I don't know. I, f I forget that, that he was, he was a young man and he was introduced to this book somehow. I mean, he's in Germany. He's introduced this book and this just totally opened up theology to him. And he's like, I got to get into that. And it makes sense that it would all end up kind of in this message of hope. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So, Going back to the previous question before Zach's, you were talking about sin. Um, and you made a, some sort of comment that I, I'm so sorry, I can't exactly remember about how you, you differentiate between yourself and Niebuhr in terms of, of sin. But in what ways do you see 
Niebuhr's take on sin and realism to mean needing improvement for the 21st century. Obviously, in the, the, the last chapter, you provide some critiques from some feminist scholars and, and uh, race scholars on, on Niebuhr's thought in terms of his relationship to sin and pride. So what would you have to say to that? Yeah, well, you know, I'll say that there is a risk, and this is something that I've, I've come to appreciate more as I've attempted to do more commentary on current events. The thing with commenting and what's happening in front of you is that your own perceptions of those things are going to be time-bound and in time will reveal themselves to be limited. And Niebuhr's no exception, right? He's a mid-20th century white male and he has the characteristic blind spots that come with that. And he worked through them really admirably in a lot of ways. Um, but we, we still have to kind of like be honest about those limitations. Um, so where the feminist critique comes in with Niebuhr, and you know, this is off of the 1970s, scholars like Judith Plasco and Valerie Saving really pushed Niebuhr on, you know, you build your understanding of sin on Augustine's analysis of pride, right? And the thing with pride is that it needs to be subdued and broken so that people can be cracked open and become receptive to other ways of being in the world. Um, that's a wonderful message for alpha males who have massive egos. Not a great message for people who have a really hard time cultivating ego strength. And so for Plasco or saving, um, that's, that's true of most women. And so for them, the, you know, the, the sin is actually running away from, you know, the process of cultivating a healthy ego and redemption is in the form of, you know, cultivating that robust sense of self. So if for, for, for women to listen to Niebuhr's message, they take exactly the wrong message, which is, sub, you know, humble yourself. That's exactly what they don't need to do. They need to assert themselves, right? So that, that's the nub of the, the feminist critique. And I do think there are resources within Niebuhr. Niebuhr doesn't really develop these very much, but in Nature and Destiny of Man, he has this more nuanced analysis of sin where he talks about sin as manifesting either as pride or as sensuality. So what does he mean by that? You know, pride is this kind of like self-assertion, you know, placing oneself at the center, you know, pushing others down on your way to the top, that kind of thing. Um, sensuality on his telling is basically flight from responsibility. It's running away from it. It's escapism, right? When, when, you know, people turn to substances to forget about their problems, that's sensuality on Niebuhr's telling of it. And it's this, he doesn't give this as much attention as he does to pride. Part of that's context. He's dealing with world war. He's dealing with megalomaniacs in the world stage. So he really devotes his energy to cultivating his analysis of pride. But there is this, this theological account there for we, we have to like push against this impulse to escape from responsibility. And that's where I think there is a lot of resource potentially within Niebuhr, um, you know, for feminist thinkers, uh, for scholars who are representing communities on the margins, right? Because there's this whole account for, you know what? We can't flee from our responsibilities, right? We, we have to build something. We have to figure out how to stand up for ourselves. We have to figure out how to push the dominant culture 
um, in ways that help create space for us to, 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 you know, be able to realize ourselves so that that resource is there. And I think that's what explains Niebuhr's perennial appeal, um, you know, to, to, to black theologians and, and other people who are representing communities on the margins, because it, he does offer such an astute analysis of power and how power works and by implication, how to push back against power blocks. So they, they do have to read Niebuhr against the grain a little bit to, to find those resources, but I, but I do think those resources are, are there and are theologically anchored by his analysis of sensuality. This is actually, Jeremy, was exactly my take last week when we went over this chapter is, I, I think you had said something like, I, I have the quote here, you said, one wonders if Niebuhr might have formulated his understanding of sin and grace a bit differently had he not been so relentlessly focused on sociopolitical arena. And my comment last week, I said, well, I think he formulated it. Like, I think it's there. And I went to the same thing that you went to, Jeremy, just now of Nature and Destiny of Man. And it was his critique of the naturalists and, and romantics that they they are guilty of the opposite end of, of pride, where they absorb themselves into nature and retreat from industrialization and, and so on. Um, but yeah, that's the sin of sensuality, or I, I don't know if Niebuhr calls it resignation. I think that's a Kierkegaard thing, but I've always kind of thought of it in terms of we resign ourselves. And, and I even thought that there's a way of doing this with Niebuhr's already kind of ready-made myth of Adam and Eve, instead of focusing on the apple, you focus on what happens after the apple that they push responsibility on somebody else. Oh, it's the woman you gave me. It's, you know, it's, it's the snake, whatever. And they hide, they cover up. Yeah. Well, and as you know, another feminist scholar, Phyllis Tribble, her rereading of, um, of the Adam and Eve story, she points out like Adam's the one who passes the buck. Right. Eve comes much closer to accepting responsibility. Hmm. Does not all the way, you know, she's, she, there's, there's still kind of like a passivity to how she acknowledges, you know, the, the, the snake gave me the apple and I ate, but it's a very different response from Adam. Adam blames God basically. Yeah. <laughs> the woman you gave me. Yeah. yeah. No, she's, she's a much more active agent in the story and comes much closer to accepting responsibility. So there, there is, you know, these, these motifs, it, the, 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 the push and pull between, um, between pride and sensuality in this theological sense um, also make for a much more interesting and in-depth analysis of the Adam and Eve story. Yeah, good. Well, uh, my next question is on the Jewish state. Um, talked about this some last week. Would Niebuhr have, I guess this is two questions. Would Niebuhr have any regrets for what, how he articulated it back then? And with the privilege of history of being able to look back on it. Second question is, would he critique the situation differently now that it's in existence? And I, I guess kind of what would he, what would he do with it now? Um, well, thanks for the softball question. Dr. <laughs> <Bailey>. Um <laughs> Um, well, so there, there are two aspects to that. Um, so like, you know, would Niebuhr, what would Niebuhr say about his act, act, you know, activism back then, right, pushing for the formation of a Jewish state? And I think, I don't think he would have changed that decision then, right? 
because part of what's changed is, you know, now Israel's a nuclear power, right? It's one of the most powerful nations on earth. You know, back in 1946, 1947, when these discussions were happening about the Jewish state, the Jewish people were extremely vulnerable, and especially in the wake of, you know, of World War II and the Holocaust. And so I think there's nothing at all that he would have regretted of pushing so hard for the formation of a Jewish state. I think he would have seen it as an absolute necessity um, and as part of his responsibility as an American of German extraction, right, in the wake of World War II, to be really vocal about pushing and advocating on behalf of the Jewish people. Would he see the pitfalls of kind of attaching nationalism to ethnicity? Or um, Well, all right. So where I see a potential pitfall is I, I think Niebuhr would have regretted not um, doing more to like articulate the role of Palestinians in all of this, mm-hmm. right? I, I they, they kind of recede from his analysis in a way that's not true of his contemporaries. I mean, I, you know, I don't know this firsthand, but I've, I've, I've heard from people who I trust that, you know, a figure like Abraham Joshua Heschel was actually quite articulate about the plight of Palestinians, right? And, and, and who's going to push, you know, who, who's, who's going to care more about issues around the formation of a Jewish state than somebody like Rabbi Heschel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think Niebuhr would have regretted not doing more to create space for the Palestinian perspective, but I don't think he would have regretted uh, pushing for the formation of the Jewish state at all. Um, I, I, think, I think that's something that he would have seen as a necessity of the time. Uh, what would he say about the Jewish state today? That, that would be very different. Right. I think he'd basically that the same ironic critique he makes of America and irony of American history, I can see him doing the exact same thing with with the state of Israel. Right. And talking about these multiple ironies of you see yourself as a weak victim. And yet you're a nuclear power that's just like grinding, um, you know, your past Palestinian neighbors into the dust. Yeah. Like I, I, I think Niebuhr would have seen that as 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 a very real problem today. Um, and and for the record, if any of you have been, you know, in Gaza or the West Bank, it's it's very clear. There's all this infrastructure that's Israeli run, Israeli created, Israeli owned that completely chokes off these different Palestinian communities from one another. Hmm. Um, and I think Niebuhr would have found that to be a real problem and would have spoken out about it. Well, yeah, I've been I've been to the West Bank, and definitely the distinction is pretty clear. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the checkpoints, all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, it's yeah, it's very different than me in actual in, in Israel. It's like a it's like a trend, a pretty intense transition. Yes, it is. Good. Well, I think we have time for one question apiece. So I believe Zach, you're up. Well, no, Aaron, you had a really good question. I want I want to give a lot of time to that that other question you had about. Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. Um, again, it's probably more applied questions for what Niebuhr thought would do for today. But, you know, America is confronted with the big question on race. And it really culminated with the tragic death of George Floyd. And so my question is, how do you think Niebuhr would treat the death of George Floyd if you were alive today? Another softball for you. I know. <laughs> um, so one of the most interesting, you know, kind of obscure pieces of Niebuhr's that I came across in my research was from the early 1930s. He, I think it's called Reflections from the Southland, right? He had done a tour of 
the American South and met with pastors and came away from it. Um, and this is, you know, he's, he's at union at this point, he's reading James Weldon Johnson. Um, you know, he's engaging Du Bois. So he's, he's in dialogue with, with, with black thinkers at this point, but he just talks about these, like the stranglehold of Jim Crow on the South. And he's even seeing it among the ministers that he's in conversations with. And he makes this observation where he says, you know, when people, when black people get lynched, uh, people treat this as this scandal. Um, and what they fail to recognize is that it is actually the logical outcome of Jim Crow. Mm. Right. The Jim Crow system, this, you know, illusion of, of, you know, separating the races. Right. And, and that somehow being this, this thing that needs to be maintained, the logical outcome of that separation and the power imbalances it creates and the ways that it allows some, you know, white people to abuse black people. Um, lynching is the logical outcome of that process. So you want to get rid of lynching, you have to take down Jim Crow. There's no other way. And he's quite blunt about this, right? Which is pretty insightful for, you know, like a white pastor from the 1930s, from the early 1930s. Um, but I think you'd see the, you know, the boot on George Floyd's neck as the logical outcome yeah. of um, American policing. And the power structures that keep it in place. And, and he'd basically say, like, you have to undo um, the power structures that incentivize police to do exactly what they did to George Floyd, if you want to deal with, with racism. So obviously, you know, if you want to deal with the deeper problem. So obviously, you know, you know, is, is, are the officers guilty and should be prosecuted? Absolutely. But we have to deal with the systemic issues that make this the logical outcome of policing in America, which we've seen played out tragically over and over and over again. And I have very good grounds for thinking that that would be the Niberian take on that. I, I have something to follow up with that on. Do, uh, Dorian seems pretty convinced that to Niber rate, th this is almost bewildering to me. Like I had to read it twice, but he seems to be suggesting that race to Niber is nothing more than kind of a personal bias or I don't know. Uh, so if I'm remembering, uh, yeah, if I'm remembering Dorian's position correctly, he basically says that for Niebuhr race was egoism writ large. He didn't necessarily have the language for, Niebuhr didn't necessarily have the language for racism as a structural problem. And there's a technical sense in which that's correct, right? The, the structuralist movement in academia didn't really take hold until the seventies. Yeah. Right. So this 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 careful analysis of, of structural issues uh, post dates Niebuhr. Critical theory was happening at the same time as Niebuhr. And yeah. So you have like, you know, kind of nascent political theory. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, post stroke Niebuhr isn't able to engage in the same way. So 1952 onward, I mean, he still has a lot of really valuable contributions, but it's, it's building on what went before. Um, you know, his wife, Ursula, talked about how his appetite for theoretical work really diminished post-stroke. Yeah. And you see that in his output, like his, his ability to engage at that theoretical level was, was um, you know, took a hit um, after that time. And so that's part of it. But, you know, I, I also think, again, it's, it's a fair critique. Like I, I think of Niebuhr as doing about the best that one could as a white theologian who's still bound up in 
white power structures can do, right? Yeah. He, he didn't see his way out of those power structures necessarily. But again, I, you know, and this is where I'm sympathetic to um, his daughter, Elizabeth Sipton, when during the interview, she was saying, you know, people criticize my dad on race, um, failing to acknowledge the immense distance that he traveled from as somebody in his social location. Mm-hmm. Right. And if they put an ounce of the, you know, effort <laughs> that he did into these issues, maybe I take the critique seriously. Yeah. It almost seems like we'd be asking him to do something superhuman to, I mean, be like, I look mm-hmm. back on his life from 2022 and I can see the pieces that are there that wouldn't be that difficult for him to, to put together, to, to create a, a structural racism critique. Um, but it, it, it just seemed like a lot of this stuff had to be worked out in the academy to, to, for him to, to really put these things together, I think. But, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think so. And that's where we have to be careful um, to not be Manichaean and how we read people who've gone before us, mm-hmm. right? Let's, let's not expect them to be perfect. Let's not dismiss them because of their flaws and sometimes pretty major flaws, right? Thinkers from the past are going to have them, right? Because all humans do. Um, so let's be honest about the shortcomings and the flaws and call the insights and use them in the present. I mean, this is, again, I mean, I, I, I'm convinced this is what somebody like, like James Cone saw in Niebuhr and why he continued teaching classes on Niebuhr, even though he is one of Niebuhr's most strident critics. It, there, is, there is a lot of respect in the fact that he kept teaching Niebuhr. And, and there's, there's a model there, I think, for how to engage him on these issues. I wonder if my grandkids are going to critique me for driving a, a gas car when there are so many electric cars around, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I wonder how history is going to judge me, you know? Oh, absolutely. We're, we're all going to, um, you know, have glaring shortcomings in hindsight that we're completely oblivious to right now. Yeah. And again, that's, that's just the human condition. It's almost like we need a, uh, a liturgy of neighbor, you know, <laughs> return, return to the text. I'll tell you what, Pastor Narison. We're working on it. We're doing yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So Niebuhr has a certain way that he describes the way that we sin, or maybe it's just disparaging words, you know, for who he happens to be going after at a given time. Uh, but we see kind of this pro- progress. Cornell West has made note of it, and I want to get your thoughts on it. So during in Detroit, he call he's he's kind of generous to Henry Ford a little bit and says, you know, yeah. you might have good intentions. Um, stuff like that. But he says, you're at least as naive as you are shrewd. Um, and uh, so he has that kind of terminology, you know, naive yet shrewd. Uh, 10 years later, he's going to be calling people stupid and hypocrites. And then 20, 30 years later, he's going to be calling similar things like this ironic. And I wonder if uh, are these switches in any way related to the maturation of his thought? Or is it just kind of arbitrary and we're just, you know, putting things together? Well, you know, no, I think it is tied to to a, a certain theological evolution from, you know, at least as naive as he is shrewd, sounds very social gospel. Yeah. It's like trying to convert the mogul, right? Um, the stupidity of the average man is very kind of like, you know, 
moral man, immoral society, dialectic, right? Um, and the pivot to irony, I, I do see that as kind of like the mature theological position of, you know, cultivating this habit of seeing human affairs from the God's eye view. Yeah. And realizing that from that perspective, uh, we're all kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And all in need of mercy. Right. So I, I do think there's a theological component. And I, I also just think it's part of, um, you know, maturing as, as a human being, you know, apparently as humans, we do tend to become a little more merciful as we age. Right. It's not coincidence that parents tend to go easier on the youngest child than on the oldest. That's all part of just you, you, you get enough life experience under your belt. Um, you, you, you figure out ways to be a little bit more merciful. And I wonder if that comes into play a little bit as well. Yeah. And I think I, I remember Cornell West saying that he liked the, the neighbor who would call out hypocrisy, but in a, in a lot of ways, like, I, I just think irony is a much better word because hypocrisy almost, you know, implies that, you know, you're doing something wrong and you're doing it anyway. Um, but irony is kind of like, okay, this unknown thing ends up somehow being attached to, to the goodness you want to do. And I think that, I think most people think they're good people. And, uh, and using irony is kind of a way of showing our limitations um, that these things aren't predictable. The bad things that come about aren't always predictable. Like it's, it's something that a lot of times we only see, you know, in retrospect, but we can use those things to, to better refine our understanding of ourselves as we go forward. Well, and I wonder if, if somebody like Cornell West would see some resources for threading the needle between irony and calling out hypocrisy in um, Reflections on the End of an Era, which is a book that Wes really likes, by the way. I've, I've had conversations with him about it. But one of the things that Niebuhr does in that book is he, he talks about the value of grace. Like, basically, like we, we have this sense of the good we ought to do and that we don't do it. And that heightens our sense of tension. And we need grace to help slacken the tension enough so that we're not paralyzed by the realization of how short we fall. Mm-hmm. And so part of the work of Christian ethics is to figure out when to heighten and when to slacken the tension that we place on other people. So I think there are times where maybe I, the motif of irony doesn't heighten the tension enough, yeah. where we need to be willing to call things hypocritical in very blunt terms to snap people out of their apathy. But once they're engaged, we do have an obligation to extend grace, right? To slacken the tension enough so that they don't just like spiral into shame and despair, (laughs) right? If we want to induce godly sorrow and not worldly sorrow, we have to be willing to extend grace. Yeah. All right, Aaron's question. Let's get to it. Yeah, so the question is, we've talked a lot about divine laughter. Thanks, Zach. Um, so what are some ways each of us have, has, uh, laughed at ourselves recently and why? Well, I, the first thing that jumped to my mind was when, whenever I'm doing, uh, uh, Greek, like when I do Greek for my sermons and stuff like that, I'll like get to this passage and I'll be like, this is like not understandable. Like, like I can't, it can't be translated, you know what I mean? And I just, I assume at first that it's just, it's the fault of like the text, you know, that it's like, Oh, like you can't come up with an accurate translation. 
And then I realized that like, really what that is, is just it probably really has to do with my lack of expertise that is going on there more, more than likely. But it's like really funny to me. It's like something that I, I laugh at like continually because it happens like every time I go to study Greek, I have that like almost like prideful feeling of like, oh, this, this is clearly, it's clearly in the text. It's clearly the fall of the text. But then I realized like, no, I just, I need, I, I'm not that good at Greek, you know, <laughs> but it's funny to me that I start there. I start with, it's the fault of something else and not myself, you know? And so I was just kind of look at that. It's kind of when I, when I think of divine laughter, I think of that kind of like, just something humorous about that, that I, I, I assume it's something else's fault and not like, a, you know, I need to re, you know, study a little bit more maybe. Um, yeah. For me, I would say that I am hilariously, I don't know if I would call it indecisive or cowardly or what, but I'm so active on Twitter and rarely do I ever like put myself out there, like what I actually think and my own opinion about uh, a controversial issue. Um, and uh, I don't know. And I think that sometimes I use Niebuhr kind of as a crutch to, um, to complicate things so that I don't have to be courageous, I guess. And um, <laughs> you're laughing at me now, I guess, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> it's the laughter of self-recognition. Okay, good. <laughs> but yeah, I think that uh, I let it, it it's kind of like uh, David Brooks's critique of Niebuhr, uh, that he's the man on the gray horse type of thing, or he, he can kind of create that man on a gray horse. That you're not, it's difficult. You, you can allow yourself to spiral so that you're never really truly taking a stance on anything. And I, and that's, that's something I laugh at myself about. Mm. Yeah. It's ironic, you know, that, yeah, because Eber <laughs> is one of the, definitely one of the, he's definitely more the kind of shoot first and ask questions later. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think mine, I have, I have two. One's a bit funny, maybe just as a joke at the end off of me, Jeremy. But I think mine is the amount of pressure, like growing up through high school up into even at my time at CCU and at University of Nottingham, the amount of pressure was on to be original in your thinking. And it almost becomes, you, you hear so much, you have to be original, you have to have a good idea that you almost induce yourself into thinking that all of your ideas are original <laughs> and what you're doing is you're just ripping off other people you're like oh look at this great idea i've had but you're under so much stress and anxiety that you're just co-opting these ideas and making them your own um but and i i find myself doing that all the time like oh this is great this is great what's going on and i'm like oh my god i'm just speaking like augustine here or like <laughs> speaking like jeremy um um, and my last one, this is actually quite funny, though. It's, it's probably not, it shouldn't even be put on here, but I was near my flat the other week. And uh, it was the start of the spring, summertime, and the, the pollen count it was jacked up. And I was sitting in there trying to read, and uh, my eyes started really itching. And I saw this really attractive woman. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to see if I can chat her up. And my face started going numb, so I decided to go home. And then I was on the tube going back up to my station and I saw this woman checking me out on the tube. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I must look really good today or something. And I get home and look in the mirror and my entire face is completely bulging from like what it is. I was so swollen and it looked, I looked, I looked weird. I was looked it allergies? Weird. It was the hay fever? Oh yeah, it was allergies. It was really bad. 
Oh but man. I had a good laugh at myself because of the, the self-confidence I had of how I look. <laughs> we're just looking at you for how weird you looked. That is fun. Yeah, that looked, so funny. My eyes were like golf balls coming out of my head. So it was really weird. <laughs> oh man. I that's that's great on a on a bunch of different levels. Um <laughs> so you know, I, I think for me, I because it's just it's part of doing the kind of work that I do. Like I'm in my head a lot, you know, probably too much. And I'll get to these moments where I'm writing and trying to force myself to articulate something and it's just not coming through. And I'll start getting really angry. And then I'll just have the sudden realization of like, oh, like I have not had a drink of water in like five or six hours. (laughs) Maybe I'm dehydrated. And that's like inducing this mental fog. And it's, it's the same thing. Like I, I run a lot um, in part because it's I mean, in very large part, because it's a great um, like stress reduction tool. And this, this is where having a spouse, it, it reveals our foibles <laughs> in ways that because, um, you know, my wife will, will literally tell me like, you are on edge, dude. And I think you need to go for a run. And nine times out of 10, she's right. Like I'm creating it into this like whole spiritual existential thing when all I need to do is go for a run. All I need to do is have a glass of water, right? Taking care of these very, very basic needs That's so and awesome. then things will fall into place. Oh gosh. I feel that. I feel that. Literally. Yes. That literally happens to me like on a daily basis. <laughs> That's good. Now I, um, Jeremy, we should say you you have a, a new article. It's a great article, by the way, on on the oh man, I, I forget the name of of the god, but uh, oh, Molech. Molech, the yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, the the cult of Molech uh, in um, ancient Judaism, and uh, and it 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 deals basically. It's is a sermonic essay um, yeah. in Niebuhr style, uh, and it deals with. Uh, AK-47s and kind of taking a good look at, you know, what we value in society. Do we value our children? Do we value guns? That type of thing. It was uh, very well done. So I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that, but I was just going to encourage our listeners to, to read that. We're going to post it on Twitter. So, yeah, no, thank, thank you very much. And I, I appreciate the kind words about the piece. Um, yeah. And basically it is trying to say that our, you know, our fixation with, semi-automatic weapons i'm not talking here about you know hunting rifles or or handguns i'm talking specifically about these high caliber weapons like our fixation with them um it's about the illusion of control right Mm -hmm. and it's an illusion that has become idolatrous for for americans and so I, i build out a biblical case for why and one of the major points that i'm making is that we have fairly good biblical evidence that people who worship Moloch saw themselves as worshiping Yahweh mm-hmm. as well. They did not see the Moloch cult and worshiping a temple as being a, a, at odds with one another. And I think a lot of people who are really gung ho for um, the more disturbing aspects of our gun culture are basically doing that. They're, they're, they're worshiping at the altar of Moloch and also claiming to worship Yahweh. And yeah, um, it it was one of the best articulations I've read on the subject. And it's because I think partly because you don't go fully Manichaean with it and 
um, hating on all, you know, guns and that type of thing. But it's it's this specific type of religious uh, fervor that we find uh, among people who love and pursue semi-automatic weapons and and things like this. I I, I think it was really good, and and it's a great piece uh, for pastors out there who want who know that it's maybe a problem in their congregation. It's a really good piece uh, to, to give to a parishioner to read. So, yeah. And there's also on the same site. So this is, you know, currentpub.com. they're right now they're running a, a forum on the, the repeal of row. Mm. And I, it's also a really good resource. Uh, you know, the reflections are short. It's, it's up to 400 words long um, and that's it. But it's 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 people really wrestling with the decision, and it's a lot of people who are, you know, pro life, yeah, really thinking through this as well. Um, so it's a unique venue in that you really do have people on, on various sides of this issue wrestling with it. Um, it you know, has reflections from people like Randall Balmer. He contributed one. Oh, nice. Um, you know, so, my reflection will go up uh, eventually as well. But you know, for for pastors looking for people looking for something to get parishioners or how to help nuance their own thinking. It's, it's a good resource for that because I, I, you know, I, it's, it's one of those forums where I, I feel privileged to be a part of because I'm, you know, with people whose reflections really left me moved. What, what's the name of it again? Um, so this is, uh, the website is currentpub.com and it's, you know, I think the forum is called The End of Row and the subtitle to that is A Time to Listen. And it's just, it's, it's these short reflections from all these different people on on row and what's top of mind as they process the decision. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. I'm going to check that out. Well, uh, thank you very much again, Jeremy, uh, for doing this with me. I would love to have you on again. I, I think, I really think at some point, if you're up for it, I'd, I'd love to have you on. Maybe if we get closer to November or something, uh, do something on your uh, Tower of Babel piece, because we never got around to, to talking about that much. And it, it's another great article. Um, uh, no, I'd, I'd be, I'd be happy to come back on. And I, you know, I, I know that a lot goes into doing a podcast like this on a weekly basis. And I, I appreciate y'all for, for your commitment to, to keeping the ball rolling and to, uh, continue to build this out. Yeah. Our pleasure. So that about does it for this week's episode of the love thy neighbor podcast. Thanks again to Jeremy. Thanks again, um, to all the listeners. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Make sure you like and subscribe if you're new. Give us a good rating and a review if you're liking it. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Niebuhr for news and updates. Sometimes I'll uh, leave some Niebuhr quotes on there to get you, th- get you through your week. So, uh, yeah, take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.